Um, tonight we're going to start a, uh, at least tonight, and I'm not sure, we may go two weeks on it, but just to give a brief, um, high-level kind of a, a framework, I, I taught this lesson a little over a year ago, or about a year ago, uh, at the very beginning of our soul winning series, but I wanted to, at this point in the uh, dealing with uh, leading Mormons to Christ and the uh, what we've talked about, the, the two main parts of, of dealing with a Mormon is, uh, first of all, getting them to understand that, that their uh, doctrine, the things that they hold to and the things they believe is, is not true. But once that's done, it's so devastating to the ones that come to that realization because their life has been so wrapped up in it that then it's hard for them to find what is truth. And so we want to be able to give uh, an account for what is truth. And um, so we're going to spend some time. I think it's, it's crucial, uh, even beyond just leading a, a Mormon to Christ or sharing the gospel with them, I believe it's important for us as Baptists just to know where we got our Bible, why it is important, why we hold to the King James Version of the Bible, and why it's so uh, critical that we have uh, a pure Word of God. Not just a Word of God, but the Word of God. And uh, it's so, so important that we are not just uh, uh, saying it, but that we hold to it in our hearts and we truly believe that God is a God of His Word, that He would preserve His Word for every generation. And without error, without problems, without conflicts in it, we believe that to be found in the King James Version of Scripture. We're going to look into some of those reasons tonight. If you will look with me in Galatians chapter number 1. And uh, I'm going to, uh, we're, we're going to study uh, two lines of, of uh, basically two lines of the church, uh, or the, the, the body of believers, churches that have come down through the ages. You've got uh, churches that have remained, um, for the most part, faithful to pure doctrine. And then you have a branch of churches and religions and denominations that have branched off of that. And we're going to look at those two lines and you say, why are we studying about churches? And the reason is because it, in a large part, was the reason for and, and explains how uh, we came to the place of getting our Bible. Uh, and uh, so it's very, very important that we do that. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 6. Paul writes, and he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now, uh, it's interesting because Paul is going to condemn this in verse 7. He says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would, what's the next word here? Pervert the, or the next three words? Gospel of Christ. So we have two things that are compared or contrasted here, if you will. We have the gospel of Christ, and then we have another gospel. And according to Paul, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the other gospel is a perverted gospel. Do we understand that tonight? Okay, so under, keep that in mind. Now it says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have, we have preached unto you, let him be what? Accursed. Anybody that would change this, this gospel message. And as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach unto you any gospel, any other gospel unto, unto you, that's the perverted gospel, any other gospel, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Verse number 10 is, I believe, key to the whole argument. 
Because we find that the reason that there is a perverted gospel is because when sinful man comes to the pure Word of God, it it shows them what manner of men they are. We find that in the book of James, chapter number 1. How that it's a, a glass. It's like a man, natural man beholding his face in a glass and seeing what manner of person he is. And man does not like that. And so man wants to please himself. He wants to please the flesh nature. And rather than have a book that shows him his real true self, his real nature, he's going to then pervert that so that he feels more comfortable with it. And really, that is the whole story of the perversion of Scripture. There basically are two lines of doctrine that has come down from the time of Christ. And uh, I will say this, that there is one group of people that we believe we come from, that we hold to, uh, that say that the Bible is our sole authority, it's our sole source, it's the only place we go for our faith and our doctrine. And if our doctrine is to be pure, and in the only place that we can get our doctrine from is the Word of God, then by necessity we must have a Word of God that is pure. There is another line that took off that said we have our doctrine and we like this doctrine because it makes us feel better or it makes better sense to us and we've developed our doctrine. And so then they come and they bring the Bible and say, well, the Bible doesn't match our doctrine. So in order to make the two agree, they say, okay, we're not changing our doctrine. We're going to make the Bible agree with our doctrine. Paul began facing this. The corruption of Scripture began even back during the days of the apostles. The letters that Paul wrote to first and second, the first uh, to the church of Corinth in First and Second Corinthians were largely letters that were dealing with doctrinal errors and principal errors and, and errors of, of of how they would go about conducting themselves in the church. Very, very important that even back then in the book of Galatians, Paul even gives the warning to the church at Galatia about those that would come in and pervert the gospel. Uh, Some of the other apostles deal with the issue of false prophets and how you're to treat them. And again, already on the scene, and, and, and rightfully so, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? That Satan, after Calvary, would do all that he could to corrupt the truth. Truth has got to be preserved, doesn't it? Look with me, if you will, hold your Bibles there and take your place, or save your place there for a minute. Uh, well, you don't need to say it. We won't, we won't be coming back to that particular one. But let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy, chapter number 3. And I, I misquoted this reference the other day, but I had the right verse. I just gave you the wrong reference. So this is the correct reference with the correct verse. But 1 Timothy, chapter number 3, and verse number 15. Or, uh, verse number 15. And I'm in the wrong, cha- wrong book here. Okay, here we go. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse number 15. But if I tarry long, uh, do I have the right? Yes. Yeah. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Now, there's a lot before that, uh, and we're not going to get into that portion of what this is teaching. What I want you to focus on is the last part of this verse. That thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the what? The pillar and ground of the what? Truth. If truth is to fall, it's going to fall because the church has not been supportive of it. The church is the one that is to be the one that guarantees and and fights for and works for and labors for purity of truth. 
uh, it's interesting because as, as Christ uh, came off Calvary, came out of Calvary and was raised from the dead and uh, went to his disciples, he didn't just take them on to heaven, did he? He left them here and He gave them a commission that they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He entrusted His truth to humans. Isn't that amazing? I don't understand why He would. And I so often talk about this, that when it comes to our service to God, it's not a requirement, it's not a duty that we do grudgingly. It's a blessing and it's a privilege that God is allowing us to be a part of of this pillar and ground of the truth. It's our requirement. It's, it, God has commissioned it to us. He's given it to the church to uphold the purity of this book. We're to fight for it. We're to defend it. And, and trust me, I will. as we look through some of this stuff tonight, and I'll give you some of the history behind it, uh, it's amazing the price that has been paid for this book. For us to sit here tonight and hold it in our hands in our own language. The price that has been paid. Why? Because some people in our history past that knew the significance of a pure word for pure doctrine knew and understood the responsibility of being the pillar and ground of the truth. You say, does it matter what version of Scripture we use? Yes, it does. I'm not saying that a person cannot get saved from another version of Scripture. There are some that would hold to that. The gospel message is the gospel message, and a person gets saved when the Holy Spirit draws them to him. But I will say this, that when it comes to the preaching and teaching of doctrine, when it comes to the pure gospel of God, it does make a difference. We're going to look at some of these things tonight. Look with me one more time to John chapter number 17. If our responsibility is to be the pillar and ground of the truth, it's important for us to know what truth is. John chapter number 17, verse number 17. Jesus says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. We're to be the pillar and ground for this book. I'm not here to badmouth or to give a black eye. I'm not here to be critical or condemning of churches that do not use the King James Version. I'm here to tell you tonight that while we're here at Kepha Heights Baptist Church, this is the book we're going to use. Because we believe it to be not just a Word of God, not just a good translation of the Word of God. We believe it to be the inerrant, preserved Word of God. And uh, so we're going to look at this stuff tonight. If you have your handouts, I'm going to give you a lot of information tonight. There will be some things I can give you that are not on the handout. I tried to get as much on here as I could and still make it presentable. Um, so if you want to write some notes down, feel free to do that. You're not going to distract me. I will try to go at a pace that I don't want to rush through the material because to me this is very, very important. And so if we need to take two Wednesdays on this, we'll take two Wednesdays on it. But I want you to get the information. At around 33 A.D., we see Calvary. And then uh, from Calvary, we find the apostles. Now, a lot of the apostles that pastored in the early churches... Uh, we're writing still some of the Scripture. Uh, in fact, even the Apostle Paul, which was around the 70 A.D. time period, uh, was still writing Scripture at that time. And in the early days, even though there were teachings of corruption, there were, um, there were writings from the Apostles. And in in, in when Jesus 
uh, sat at the Last Supper and gave uh, the bread and the wine to the disciples, he said, this is the New Testament in my blood. From that point on, there was something new of, of a covenant of, between uh, God and man that was going to take place. The old uh, covenant was under law. Now we're under grace. And so there was a New Testament given. We hold it in Matthew to Revelation in our, in our Bibles that teach us about this New Testament. And, and so all of that was being written. Up until about 300 A.D., there were still some people that had uh, some churches that had the actual handwritten letters. They would chain them many times to the pulpits. And up until 300 A.D., the church at Smyrna had a letter that was written to them by the Apostle Peter. The actual paper, the actual pen and ink. And so in in that time frame... It was difficult to have bad translations because if there was a question, you just go to the church, pull the, pull the letter out that was from the apostle. And there you have it. I mean, it was, it was pretty cut and dry. After about the 300 A.D. time period, we started seeing a lot of these. Well, long before that, we started seeing a lot of those letters disappear. They were either stolen. Uh, some of them were destroyed from different things. Uh, and, uh, but the last one that was known of that I knew of and from a historian was around the 300 AD period in the church at Smyrna. Um, and then finally that one was gone as well. But long before that, we find, uh, Emperor Constantine, if you remember some of your world history, if you can think back to your high school days, Constantine was conquering the known world at the time. And, um, he, uh, saw, uh, supposedly saw a vision one day just before he went into battle, a sign of, the Latin cross. And uh, he took that as a sign uh, for battle and told his soldiers, he said, I want you to put this on your shields. And um, he then said, okay, uh, we're going to uh, require everybody in the kingdom to become a Christian. And um, they weren't uh, part of a church. There was no indication that he was ever truly saved or born again. Uh, But for the first time in the history of man, Christianity and the things of Christ became legal to, to a degree. Uh, you were allowed to join the state church. And uh, the state church already had doctrine that was corrupted. Now, you're going to find, if you take time to study uh, good sources on church history, that one of the biggest issues in doctrine that was a problem was the, the issue of baptismal regeneration. Uh, the idea that uh, you have to be not just uh, by faith, but you also have to be baptized in order to be mar- uh, to, to be uh, saved. Uh, you don't have to be baptized to be married. You, you yeah, <laughs> almost said married there. You have to be baptized. So the baptismal regeneration became a doctrinal problem. And when that becomes doctrine in the church, then there is a logical end to that. Because you've got to understand, back in this time frame, the mortality rate was very, very low in, uh, as far as age limit in the lifespan of people. In fact, infant mortality rates were through the roof. You think about the time uh, of the Dark Ages and all the plagues and diseases that were coming through. And, and little kids, three, four, five, seven, eight, ten years old, dying at a very, very young age. And so, that since the church, the, the church's doctrine had drifted, into this baptismal regeneration uh, doctrine, the, the solution to these young people dying then was another thing that became distorted, and they took up infant baptism. Uh, you have churches today that baptize infants, and the reason they do that is because they believe that there's baptismal regeneration, that that water is what saves them, and then that way if they die from that point on, then they're okay. 
Uh, it's interesting, back in the 1600s, Roger Williams started the first Baptist church that I knew of uh, on, in the New World, and it was in Providence, Rhode Island. And um, he was only there a few months. Most people don't realize that, but he was only there a few months. And then he, uh, he kind of went a little bit all, uh, off the deep end a little bit and went to reach the Indians. But uh, some of his doctrine became a little bit funny and iffy towards the end of his life. But a man by the name of John Clark was the second pastor. He came just months after Roger Williams had, uh, had uh, started that church in the 1600s. And uh, back then, the colonies were established. And uh, there was a, a fella in, um, named William Witter in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, that had fallen sick and was on his, uh, not on his deathbed, but was really, really sick and had not been able to worship and, and, uh, and go to church. And he was uh, a true believer and somebody that was solid in his doctrine. We'll find out later on, not all of them called themselves Baptists because the name had not even been used yet uh, in many cases. But uh, John Clark... And a man by the name of John Crandall and another fellow by the name of Obadiah Holmes, the three of them, all from the church in Providence, Rhode Island, decided to go to Lynn, Massachusetts and be a blessing to Brother Witter. And he, they go there and they sing with him and they have a church service in his house. And just from the historic records, a great service and a great time of fellowship together around God's Word. But back in that day in Massachusetts... It was illegal to not be licensed by the state to be part of the state church. You weren't allowed to conduct your own services, and so they came and arrested those three men. And uh, two of the men, before they knew what was going on, John Clark and John Crandall, their friends came and bailed them out and paid the fine. But uh, Obadiah Holmes, uh, his friends were a little later getting there and seeing what the other guys uh, had happened with the other guys. He refused to allow his fine to be paid, and he chose rather to be beaten at the stake uh, in the center of town rather than co- to uh, uh, admit that there was something that had been done wrong because he believed in individual soul liberty. He believed in the fact that uh, the church is to be guided as an autonomous body and it is to be dr- uh, led by uh, a pastor as he follows Christ and by the church as they also follow Christ and make sure that there's no uh, doctrinal error creeping in, there's no pastoral authority that's running amok. And, uh, and so uh, Obadiah Holmes, by conviction, would not allow his fine to be paid. He said to pay the fine would be to admission, uh, an admission of guilt, and he said, I've done no wrong. And he came off the stake, and if you remember some of the stories, I don't know if you know the story well enough or not, but uh, if you remember the story of Obadiah Holmes, as they took him down, uh, they, he said, you have beaten me as with roses. And God was with him during his time of need. But for the next 30 days... Obadiah Holmes had to lean upon his knees and elbows to get relief from the pain. This was the price, and much worse, that many people paid because they did not hold to the doctrinal error of baptismal regeneration and infant baptism. If we look at our, our, let's look at our handout for a minute. You'll find that about 150 A.D. or so, a group came out called the Montanists. The Montanists would be our our modern-day Baptists. They held to the doctrines that we hold to. They believed in the virgin birth. They believed in the deity of Christ. They believed in scriptural salvation by faith alone, not by works. They believed in scriptural baptism. Uh, They believed in uh, two offices of the church. They believed in a pastor and uh, deacons. Um, They believed in individual soul liberty. Uh, They believed in the autonomy of the local church. And uh, so many things that are our distinctives today, the Montanists believed in. 
these were some of the first folks that took up the task of preserving and writing copies of Scripture. Now, understand the printing press has not been invented yet. It wasn't invented till what, the 1500s, I think it was, somewhere around there. Is that right? Am I right on that? No, before that. No, about 1500s, I think, wasn't it? Was it 1500s, Gutenberg? I'll have to get that for you. Uh, but anyway, so all of the Scripture's copies had to be handwritten. And the Montanists were so dedicated to the task that they would sit in rooms and they would one word painstakingly, just a little bit at a time. It would take them, uh, from some historians, they would say it would take them as much as one day to just write one page of Scripture. That's how careful they were in the dictation and the transcribing of Scripture. The reason they were that careful with it was because they knew that their doctrine depended upon it. They wanted to make certain that it was not corrupted, that there was no mistakes in it. If they made one mistake on the page, if they misspelled the word, if they put a dot where it wasn't supposed to be, if they put some kind of thing that it wasn't supposed to be, they would literally throw the entire page away and start it all over again another day's labor on another page. This is how carefully they transcribed it. I also believe personally that because God has promised to preserve His Word, that these people who transcribed the early records of our Scriptures were also aided by God Himself in the accuracy of copying these things. Then we find the Novatians. Novatians and the Monetists, as many groups do, and, and before we're too critical of them, uh, our Baptists today have done this. As many groups do, as time goes on, they begin to drift. And we can look back to what Baptists used to be and look back and look at what the Baptists, generally speaking, today are. And you could say that the Baptists today have drifted also, haven't they? Many of them have. And so we find that the Novations come on the scene and they say, no, no, wait a minute, we're drifting here. Let's get back to what the Bible says. And again, having a pure word of Scripture was important. They come back to it and they say, here's the doctrine, here's the Scripture. And they again revive the, 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 the transcribing and the, the rewriting of Scripture. And then come the Donatists again around the 380 mark. You'll notice kind of a trend of about 50 to 100 years. And then they start seeing a decline of these groups, many of them. It was around this time uh, in, the, in the 150 to 200 A.D. period of time that they took the, uh, the Greek uh, writings and they translated them into Old Latin. And uh, when they put them into Old Latin, now this is not the Latin Vulgate, if you are familiar with that term or that phrase. They were written in Old Latin, and then uh, there was another one that was written in Aramaic uh, called the Syriac. And so you had the Old Latin and the Syriac, both of them were well preserved and very, very good. In fact, the Syriac was, by some historians, considered to be even better than the Greek itself because it was in the language, it was very close to the language that Christ Himself would have spoken when He spoke in His, in his uh, earthly ministry. And so uh, it would have been very, very similar to that. And so a lot of people even held to the Syriac being even better uh, than the Greek. So along comes a man... Uh, there's, uh, let's go back to Constantine for a minute because this is where they branch off. Um, he begins to put out an edict called the Edict of um, Million, and they decide, okay, we're going to uh, make Christianity a, a, a state religion. It's got to be the, the state runs it, the state licenses it, um, the state requires it. They have a couple of uh, councils. Uh, and uh, the Council of Nicaea and some of those things that come several years later. But during this time, about the 185, you'll see it on your um, uh, right side of your page here, uh, there's a man by the name of Origen. Now, Origen is a philosopher. Origen 
would be along the likes of somebody like an Aristotle or a Plato. He considered himself uh, a, a philosopher. In fact, uh, there were people that would write down things that Origen said in a day's time, and they would get tired of writing because he would speak so much. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. Sometimes you ought to just keep your tongue quiet if you don't know a whole lot. Well, Origen was a pretty ignorant fellow. He denied the deity of Christ. He denied the virgin birth. He denied uh, the uh, salvation by grace and, and through faith and uh, did not believe that those were things. He, he was one of the key ones to influence and start bringing in the idea of baptismal regeneration. Origen goes over, he gets this old Latin Bible that the uh, Montanists have so carefully transcribed and translated. And he says, I don't agree with what it says, so I'm going to change it. Now, folks, I don't know if you understand this or not, but when God says something, we don't get the choice to not like it and change it. It's what God said. So he takes the old Latin Bible and he, he changes it. Anybody want to take a guess how many times, how many times in that Bible he changed it? Any guesses? How much? Seven times? Well, how many, how many corrections, did, corrections in his opinion did he make? You want to take a guess at a number? Okay. Oh, it was over a thousand. Anybody want to go uh, more than that? How much? Thirty thousand times. In 30,000 places, he changed Scripture. Now, he spent a long time doing all this. So, again, now, now comes along, uh, several years later, uh, a bishop of Hippo in North uh, Africa. Uh, some people would know him uh, as St. Augustine. Protestants call him St. Augustine. Um, the Catholics would call him St. Augusta, I think. Is that the Herald? You might know probably better than I would. St. Augusta. This fellow was not a friend of the Baptists. Uh, he cer- certainly uh, was, was very, very um, harsh, would kill uh, people that believed the way you and I believe. He would have them put to death. It was during this time that he uh, had told um, a fellow, uh, I wish I could remember his name, I didn't write it down. During the time of the Donatists, which you'll find over there about 300 A.D., he sends them in to um, a village... Um, no, that's a little bit later. But he goes into, into the Donatists, and St. Augustine has 30,000 of them killed. And he tells them that because they are heretical in holding to the fact that it is salvation by faith alone and not by baptism. That one issue, Augustine comes in and says, 30,000 of you are killed. And uh, starts killing people off for this. Um, Council of Nicaea comes in 325 A.D., and this is the first time we find the marriage of church and state, um, where the, the church and state, and I say that officially, okay, there has been marriage of church and state prior to this in practice, but as far as there being a, an agreement, a paper written and saying this is, this is the way it's going to be structured, uh, some people look at this time frame as the birth of the Roman Catholic Church, although it already had its origins all the way back even to the time of Christ, if you'll follow it back there uh, from the times of error. Um, so around 400 A.D. comes another fella, and this, this fella is a man by the name of Jerome, and uh, right after the Council of Nicaea, and the Catholic Church commissions him to correct the Scriptures again, and so he creates what later becomes known as the Latin Vulgate. Uh, he takes the old Latin again, 
and he spends his entire fortune buying the works of Origen, who's changed the Scripture 30,000 times. He, he makes five columns of Scripture, largely drawing from the works of Origen. He prefers column five in his, in his columns, and uh, largely corrected and changed already by Origen. And Jerome corrects that an additional 6,000 times, in addition to what Origen had already corrected it. becomes known as the Latin Vulgate. And uh, so, again, very, very corrupted things. Things are, uh, 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 things are creeping into the church. Teachings are creeping into the church that are being held because they believed that not only was the Bible an authority, but they also believed that the Pope was an authority that was equal to and then sometimes greater than the Bible. And so if the Pope said it, it was gospel. And they had to change their Bible to make it fit. And so we find that taking on. During the 15th, 12th to 15th century, uh, again, we find the Dark Ages. We find the Great Inquisition. And uh, perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that, maybe a little bit more next week, uh, about the Great Inquisition. And uh, I'll probably bring a few examples, a few stories uh, of the prices that have been paid. But I will say this, that between um, the time of origin and Constantine, uh, really from the time of Aug- uh, 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 St. Augustine and on, there have been literally tens of millions of people that were martyred simply for not uh, deviating from doctrine, saying, we will not change. The only way they knew what right doctrine was, was they had a pure word. They didn't have the corrupted word. They didn't have the works of origin. They didn't have the works of Jerome. They had a pure word that's coming down. Now, during this time, uh, you know, on the left-hand side where we see doctrinal purity, where the Bible is the sole authority, we have the Donatists. Uh, between 1000 A.D. and 1500 A.D., we find a group of people. Uh, we have uh, those that are called the Cathares. Um, we have the Albigenses. The Albigenses were around 1100 A.D. The Albigenses were the ones that a fellow that was commissioned by the church named Dominic, came into the city of Bezirs and slaughtered the entire city. One of his soldiers uh, asked him, said, what if we uh, kill some by accident that are uh, true to the church? And Dominic's answer was, kill them all, God will sort it out. This is the price that the Donatists and the Albigenses and the Cathares and the Waldenses paid down through history. We have the Waldenses, we have the Lollards, and then finally we have around a thousand or around fifteen hundred A.D. We have the word Anabaptist coming in as a name. Uh, Anabaptist. In fact, if you're if you're not careful and you go to research the history of the Baptists, you'll find that there are a lot of people who do not believe that the Baptists came into existence until around the fifteen hundreds. I will say this: be careful what you're reading about that. Because while the name Baptist, the word Baptist, was indoctrinated or was was brought in during that time period and given to the people that held to these things, the beliefs of the Baptists go all the way back to Christ, with an unbroken line of people who were so meticulous about their doctrine that their Bible had to remain pure. Uh, we finally get down to the Anabaptists. The reason they were called the Anabaptists is because they re-baptized their children. When somebody would get old enough and get saved, 
and they wanted to come and, and uh, be a part of the church, they would say, you don't have a biblical baptism. And so they would rebaptize them. Rebaptizing became a source of heresy to those that were enforcing the corrupt line. Again, understand that the state and the church are married uh, at this time. And when I say married, they're, they're, they're one and the same. The church uses civil authority to enforce the church doctrine. And so it was easy for the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, or at this point um, you have other offshoots of the, uh, the church coming out. You have Lutherans um, that come out and during the Protestant Reformation. By the way, can I help you with something tonight? Baptists are not Protestant and never have been. Uh, we didn't protest the church by coming out of the church. We were never part of it. Uh, so we need to understand that. And, you know, we don't say that arrogantly, but by the grace of God, we would have followed the same line they did. We say that by saying we just believe very strongly that our doctrine must remain pure and our Bible must remain pure since that's where we get our doctrine from. Very, very important that we do this. So down through this line of, of folks over here on the left-hand side, the Cathares, the Albigenses, the Waldenses, the Lollards, the Anabaptists, next week I'll have a handout for you that will plug in and show you where different translations of Scripture came down meticulously. One of the great transforming things that happened that brought about the end of the Dark Ages and great awakening was the invention of one piece of equipment called the printing press. Because for the first time, man could hold in his own hands his own copy. Uh, Brother Harold did a great job teaching on the Catholics uh, several about six months ago or so. And there is a distinction that is made between the clergy and the laity in that church and in churches like that. And what the distinction is, is that the laity cannot understand for themselves the Scriptures that they have to have a clergy that is educated and closer to God that can understand it and then take it and teach them. Can I tell you this? Baptists don't believe that. In fact, we encourage everybody to get a Bible and read it because we believe there's only one person that can illuminate Scripture to the heart of a man, and that's the Holy Spirit. And uh, so as we get into this a little bit further, next week, we're out of time this week, but next week we're going to plug in the different translations of Scripture in this, and you'll see how they kind of uh, coincide here. I will say this, that one of the great translations towards the end, just before King James did his, was called the Tyndale Bible. In fact, a large portion of our King James Bible came almost directly from the Tyndale uh, Bible. And uh, once we see... Uh, some of the extent and the extreme that the writers and the translators went through um, to come up with our version of Scripture, it's amazing. We're going to talk a little bit about the team that was assembled uh, for the King James Version translation. And we're going to talk about the new translations that are coming out, or have come out in the last few hundred years, and the sources uh, that they came from. And uh, we've talked a little bit about that, but we'll talk a little bit more uh, with a handout so that you can have kind of a structure here uh, to see how things go. So tonight, kind of foundational, trying to give you a, a real high-level overview of differences here uh, between the two lines of church history that very, very much so impact 
the lines of, of Scripture that take place, okay? So I hope tonight was a help to some degree. And, and folks, I'll tell you, we're trying to do in three or four 45-minute sessions what really, if Christians want to be well-grounded in this, ought to take months to study, and maybe even years. Uh, there is no better study than to be grounded and know this. You say, why is this important? Because at some point, a Mormon's going to need to know, how can I trust this book? If all of a sudden my book of Mormon is not right, and you're telling me the Bible is, how do I know that? And we need to be able to tell them how they can believe that, how they can put their trust in this, how well this book has been proven over the centuries. And uh, so it's very, very important that we know that stuff. There are some good sources out there, and at the end of uh, this study, we'll probably end up being at least two more Wednesday nights on this um, from where I'm at tonight and where I'd like to go with it. Uh, we'll probably be at least two more Wednesday nights, maybe three. And uh, at the end of it, I will give you some uh, bibliography resources of things that I could recommend reading uh, that would be helpful. Uh, there are some really good ones out there. There's some that you need to be careful of and stay away from because they they do like the scripture. They took an, uh, a, a turn that doesn't go right. So uh, again, all of this stuff you can find pretty much in history books. Um, it, they're, they're, it's not it's not hidden history. We don't talk about it much anymore. And boy, I'll tell you what, I really wish our young people would learn this because we're living in a day where our history books have been rewritten so much that our young people don't realize the price that's been paid for even this country to be in existence tonight. For us to have the liberty to jump in our cars this evening after we get off work and drive down the road and blatantly and openly pull into a driveway of a church, that freedom has been relatively recent in the history of man. The great experiment. And can I tell you this, and we'll talk a little bit more about this maybe down the road a little ways that while man came to the United States and to the New World to get religious liberty, they did not come to give it. And we did not have true religious liberty in America until the 1830s. And you say, boy, that's a long time after the, the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence. It, and it was. But there were still states that required you to be a part of the state church up until the 1830s. And um, so really, the religious liberty we have... Uh, that we enjoy without persecution, been relatively recent. Some of your grandparents would have known people that were alive, maybe great-grandparents would have known people that were alive during the time that it was not religious liberty in America fully. And that, that kind of brings it home as to how recent it is. Uh, so we're going to look at the price that's been paid uh, next week. We're going to look at some of the translations that were... Uh, we're not going to go through every one of them in detail, but we're going to give you a quick framework of the translations that came down from the Old Latin and the Syriac that were so meticulously, carefully translated uh, down through history. We're going to look a little bit about uh, the Guten, Gutenberg Bible and, and how he came about printing it and some of that kind of stuff. And uh, so I hope that will be helpful to you. Again, this isn't meant to be comprehensive and give you an exhaustive study of it. It's just meant to give us a working knowledge, hopefully enough, that we will go and add the pieces in and fill the pieces in through our own study and our own reading and hopefully be better equipped not only in our own doctrine to have faith in this book, but also be equipped to help share with other people what our doctrine is and be convinced. Isn't it good to be able to be convinced that it's true? We don't have to tell them something that, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. We know it to be true, 
and that's a good thing to do. Let's, yes, ma'am. Well, yeah, Satan's a, Satan's a great deceiver. I, I should have took questions here probably, but Satan's a great deceiver. And he, he, there are people that can come face to face with truth in God's Word and still not see it. Uh, the Bible says, "...the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned." Now, when a man comes under conviction, the Holy Spirit's working on him. Uh, before he gets saved, the Holy Spirit then is illuminating truth. But before that, the natural man doesn't see that. He doesn't know that. And in and... right, right. So there's going to be. You're, you're, we're going to look at some of this stuff uh, next week with some of the um, uh, the martyrs. And you're going to shake your heads and say, "How in the world could people think they were doing God a favor by doing the atrocities to these people that they were doing?" Uh, but they did. They were deceived into thinking that they were the ones right, and they were cleansing the church and keeping purity in the church. And the truth of the matter was they were corrupting it. But again, that comes from unsaved, uh, natural people that Satan has just brought great deceit upon. Sure. Right, right, yeah. But that's, folks, I, and I don't mean to be, uh, I'll just say this and then we're going to pray and go. I, 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 don't, I don't want us to become mean-spirited to people that don't use the King James Version. I want us to be well-grounded in it. I want us to be able that when somebody asks us, why in the world do you hold to the King James Version, we can tell them, and we know why, and that it makes uh, sense for us to be able to give an account uh, we can do. We can handle the word of God well and skillfully, and know why we hold to what we hold to. And uh, so, hopefully, that'll be helpful to you. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless and use it as we've spent some time tonight, emphasizing the importance that we are the pillar in the ground of the truth, and Lord, that your word is truth. And Lord, if uh, I believe it was the psalmist that said, "If truth has fallen in the streets." What can the righteous do? Lord, we want to make sure that if we are the last bastion of holding forth the word of truth, that we are faithful to the end. May we be convinced of the preservation, the perfectness of this particular book that we hold in our hands tonight. And then, Father, that we will defend it and that we will teach it to the next generation. Lord, one of the great failures, I believe, in recent years has been the failure for godly men who knew better to fail to pass on to the next generation why this was so vitally important. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to have a revival and a renewed spirit back to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.